our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles to sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. or 
have experienced some kind of conflict on the level over things that really are not big picture things. Things that really don't matter. But unfortunately, human history, church history, is filled, filled, riddled with, pockmarked with division, tension, conflict that should have been avoided. So this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to be talking to us here in 2017 and addressing how does a church live together that is diverse, that comes from many different backgrounds, theological, religious, ethnic. How does a church like that get along with each other? How do they love each other? How do they keep a big view of the gospel smack dab in front of them all the time? How do they keep the gospel center to how they live? So what is on the line here is not whether or not the gospel is big enough or powerful enough to unite Jews and Gentiles together, because we all know that the gospel is big enough. It is powerful enough. So for our church, and for that church in in Rome, the question is whether the gospel is still big enough for us to be unified in the midst of our unique preferences, our our backgrounds, our desires. So we've got to also understand, before we go any further into Romans chapter 15, where we have been so far. Context is king, right? So what happened Starting back in chapter 14, the first 13 verses was there was a problem happening in the church that it was related to how new Jew, Jewish converts who were they were having a very hard time emotionally letting go of these standards that were that they came to understand and to believe and to, to cherish, especially when it came when it was related to eating meat or drinking wine or celebrating certain days. And Paul was seeing that pride could easily divide a church as non-meat eaters judged the meat eaters and how meat eaters could look down on their non-meat eating brothers or sisters. But then we saw that there were kind of two principles that arose out. We saw that there was this command that we are to welcome one another despite our disagreements. And we are also to be considerate of each other's preferences. We learned that there are more important issues in play. And it's an important mark of, of Christian maturity to learn how to weigh these different things. I called it theological triage. And I illustrate it by a kind of like a target. Where at the center of this target are those absolutes. These are things that we are all going to die on the hill for. These are things that make a Christian a Christian. And then the next ring out are our convictions, those things that might start putting us in different theological camps, but still are not enough to divide and say non-Christian or we are the truth. And then there just comes those pure preferential issues, that finer final outer ring. What's your preaching style? Do you have 
So he's coming back to, with this reestate, restatement of what he had said all through <coughs> chapter 14, right? There are strong brothers and there are weak brothers in the church. The strong have less of a conscience issue about dietary restrictions and festivals that are part of their spiritual heritage. The weak, however, are really struggling. They're, they're pushing through and their hearts are heavy. They are easily offended. They feel guilty and they ultimately are feeling unsettled in their faith. So while the, the weak brothers cannot and should not stay weak, right? The goal is always to grow stronger. Paul puts the onus on who? The strong. In fact, in the Greek, this word for strong could be translated as the powerful. So hey, those of you who are powerful, the word is comes even from the word dynamite. Those of you who are powerful and you know who you are, Paul's putting the onus on them to restrict themselves. He, he says, listen, I, I am even one who is strong. We who are strong, we who are powerful, the dynamite guys, listen, we have an obligation here. And what did he say? The weak are to bear with the failings of the weak. The strong are to bear with the failings of the weak. The weaker brother has weakness. And, and that, that's what the word failings means. There, there, are, there are weaknesses. And the stronger one needs to understand their responsibility. Their responsibility to the weaker brother's struggle like any kind of team, you know? The, the strong ones in the team don't just push forward and leave everybody behind. They, they need everybody. So what do they do? They work harder with the whole to bring them up. And, but hey, they're not going to forget about you. They're not going to leave you behind because we bear with you in your weakness. And that means that we are to help those who struggle, who are weak. And it's okay to say, man, I'll be honest with you. I'm in a weak position. And for you who are strong, say, I'll bear with you. I'll walk with you. In fact, in Galatians 6 2, it says, Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Which is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. This word is also used. Bear with is used in Matthew 8, 17, where it says that Jesus bore our diseases. But the second obligation is simply that you cannot live to please only yourself. Self-centeredness is the, the root of division and disunity. Whether it's a friendship, whether it's a marriage, a small group, a, a staff, a church, a lack of concern for others is contrary to the heart of the gospel. Anytime you see that there is any kind of division and disunity, you can point it to self-centeredness. By one or both parties. And that disunity is contrary the gospel. Therefore, the stronger, stronger brother cannot write off this younger or this weaker brother's challenge. 
central to harmony in the body is realizing the, the importance, the criticalness of our connection to one another. I am deeply connected to you. You are deeply connected to me. If you're looking for some good reading, Google uh, this phrase, union with Christ. For you to understand what does having a connection with Jesus, it is not just this way. It is just not vertical. It pours out horizontally. Union with Christ. So in order for the church to be a place, a group of people that are filled with harmony, you need to value what it means to be the church. I mean, what it means to, for your life to be covenantally connected to other people. You do not have the right to use your rights without considering other people. You cannot be concerned only about your needs, your wants, your rights. And part of the problem with our, our American Christian culture is that we have an inflated sense of entitlement, don't we? I am entitled to my rights. And often it is the squeakiest and loudest meal that gets the most attention, doesn't it? There's a tendency to, even in the, the American church today, to have a low view of the church and a relationship to the church. The gravitational pull for our culture is towards asserting your own rights and having a lack of concern regarding other people. And that is the reason, friends, why church membership, being a part, covenantally being a part of this church is important. It is the one official way that you can lay stake in the ground and say, listen, my Christianity is not all about me. There are people to whom I belong. I belong to these people. By putting a stake in the ground, much like marriage, a vow, these are my people. This this is my wife. This is my husband. And I'll stand before God and these people and declare these promises. And the same is true with the bride of Christ. Being the church means that we are deeply concerned with each other. And verse 2 provides a helpful balance to verse 1. And I say balance because you might be inclined to think that the goal is just to make the the weaker brother happy, right? It's kind of like your family, uh, I don't know if you experience it at Thanksgiving or at, at your Christmas function. Man, if we can just keep this one happy and put, that way they won't squeak and they won't cause them any problems and you start to cater to them and just please them. Anybody ever have <coughs> Liars? Okay, thank you. There's a few happy people here, right? You, you, you're looking at these people and going, That's not what is going on here. Paul is saying, listen, your goal isn't just to please them. Paul adds qualifiers, doesn't he? He says, we do this for their good and to build them up. So the weaker brother's emotions and his struggles are not ultimate. 
And it's not the definitive test of what should or should not be done. The stronger brother needs to be considerate so that the weaker brother can grow and become more and more secure in his or her faith. So do you see how Paul deals with self-centeredness in both the strong and the weak? The strong are not to be selfish. They're not to be selfish in not considering the needs of the weaker brother. No. The weaker brother needs to understand his struggles and his preferences are not the center of everything. The world doesn't revolve around you. And Paul is addressing this self-centeredness by saying, listen, it's not about you and all your preferences. It's really, it's really just, it's really fine. It's really just me. It's just really about me. Paul's saying, listen, address your self-centeredness. Living harmoniously means that both parties have a unique obligation to not become self-centered. Oh, if we could apply that to our marriages, to our friendships, to our work relationships. Consider the strong, consider the weak. The application is different, but the principle is absolutely the same, isn't it? So does this tone and this part fit with how you see relationships inside the body of Christ? And even inside of our church? Have you made your pet preferential issues something more important than what it should be? Are you dismissive of people who you think are just struggling through issues that are petty or just old school? Do you just write them off as just everyday things? Do you have friends who hold different convictions than your own? Part of the beauty of the body of Christ is that there is harmony which is created as different people join together for a common vision and act on that vision with maturity, with love, and with grace. Which moves us to the second thing, what our source of harmony. I think the reason that he talks about this next is because Paul's instructions are really countercultural. If you understand verses 1 and 2, you'll be left asking this question. Why would anyone ever want to do this? Why would you want to limit your freedom? They're yours. Christ died for them. Why would you give them up? At another level, it could sound more like this. This is hard. This is really hard. And I'm not sure I can do this. How do I get my heart and my mind in the right place? Because this is unusual. Everything that I desire is to be the king of the mountain. My preferences reign. My rights are supreme. How do I get my heart and my mind around this? The fact of the matter is that that harmony in any context, whether it be marriage, a home, a church, a city, in the government, is very very unusual. It's rare, isn't it? Real harmony. I'm not talking about getting along. Harmony. Have you ever been to a choir concert? Raise your hand. Just you. How about a band? I'm not talking about like ACDC. I'm talking about like 
a, a real band where you get the whole, all the different instruments out there, and they don't play just one tune, do they? They play multiple different things going on, and it is absolutely beautiful. <coughs> that is the way it is supposed to be. Harmony, the harmony in the gospel is designed to be a stunning statement, a beautiful statement to a watching and listening world. I've had those moments where after that last note is sung, there is this strange silence in the room where people just sit. Or there is a thunderous amount of applause even before they get to the end because they are in awe of, oh my word, that was stunning, that was beautiful, my heart is stirred. And that is what, friends, the gospel is supposed to be like. Stunning, beautiful, awe-inspiring. However, harmony does not come naturally for us, does it? And that's why Paul cites the example of Christ and why he states the example of the sufficiency of Scripture. Without the life of Christ and without the Word of God, there is no reason, no explanation for how harmony should happen. Why should a stronger believer bear with the weaknesses of others? Look to Christ. Look to Christ. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches, the, the offenses, the public disgrace, the insults of those who insulted you, O oh God, fell on me. Paul cites the example of Christ and quotes Psalm 69. The argument is pretty straightforward. If you are a Christian, your sins are a public disgrace, a public insult against God. And what happened? A beautiful transaction. Jesus bore them on the cross, therefore making salvation possible. This is the fundamental truth as it relates to the message of the entire Bible. Jesus bore the weaknesses of others. The strong, the powerful, the dynamite bore weaknesses your weaknesses, my weaknesses. So he's appealing to the, the stronger brother, be like Christ. This is how it's done. You are called to do the same. He bore our sins. So surely, surely, you can bear with the weaknesses of others. And doesn't that kind of go against, it kind of grates him. No way. Giddy up, catch up with me. Don't make me slow down. But what did Christ do? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And what did God do in the very beginning? He put on flesh. And did what? He dropped among us. He, he stepped into our own zip code, our time and our space, and said, listen, I'm going to walk with you. about Christ himself will come. And even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles have hope. Christ 
verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with each other in accord with Christ Jesus that you may with one voice how many? One. One voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear endurance and encouragement again? They were connected to previously to the role of scripture in our lives, but, but in this context, they are something that God owns. God owns endurance, and God owns encouragement, and what does he do? May God grant you the God of endurance and the God of encouragement, may he grant you these things. These two words are in close proximity to the previous previous verse, and I think that it is not accidental. Paul wants us to know that endurance and encouragement and harmony must be granted by God. You cannot, you cannot conjure up these things on your own. You're going to try really hard, but it's going to fall, it's going to fail, and it's going to look miserable, and it's going to ultimately be self-centered after a while, and God is saying, Paul is saying through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, no, these are gifts from God. In other words, we are the work of a gracious God. These are gifts from a gracious and gracious God, and these are miraculous gifts. So anytime that a group of people, be it two, a hundred, or four thousand, are able to get along, able to love one another, and consider others more important, or more significant than themselves, friends, that's a miracle. That is a miracle. Additionally, the beauty of loving one another and getting along with each other, despite our differences, is worth striving for and working hard to achieve is important. Self-centeredness is a concern for your rights and opinions, and being easily offended <coughs> is easy, and it's normal. So there is something otherworldly about harmony in the body of Christ. And verse 6 sets the harmony in the context of worship. The vision and the goal is the glorification of God lifting high the name of Jesus. And the idea is that God's people are glorifying him in one harmonious voice. They're not all singing the same note, thank God. Paul's not talking about uniformity or a group of Christian clones. There is a very important place for individuality and differences in the body of Christ. And he's not encouraging unity just for unity, right? A fake kind of unity. His aim is for that the people of God to remember that the ultimate goal is to be unified on the central purpose to glorify God. Paul's not interested in peace for peace's sake or unity for unity's sake. <coughs> and biblical unity comes from people who are very different, yet have the very same goal and love for the glory of God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon 
preach about corporate praise in the sermon entitled The Power of Prayer and the Pleasure of Praise. It's not often we talk about corporate praise and pleasure. And I think it's a good encouragement to the church. Something pleasurable about praise. He said this back in 1863. United praise is like music in concert. The sound of one instrument is exceedingly sweet, but when hundreds of instruments, both wind and string, are all combined, and then the orchestra sends forth a noble volume of harmony, the praise of one Christian is accepted before God like a grain of incense. But the praise of many is like a censer full of frankincense smoking up before the Lord. Combined praise is an anticipation of heaven. For in the, that general assembly, they all, together, with one heart and voice, praise the Lord. Ten thousand thousand of their tongues, but all their joy are. The gold harmony, and the reason the song there was Division. 
I, I wonder if Paul was concerned that the church in this capital city of Rome, of the Roman Empire, might just collapse under the weight of divisions and differences. I wonder if he was battling to keep them together because of what, what would happen if the church was crushed by this divisiveness. And some of you, honestly, are, are still dealing with some of the same kind of experience. Perhaps you, you've been a part of a church split, and that's part of your story to talk about. Remember when this happened, this happened when this church leader did this, and remember when they did this, and they said that, and our family said, we're out of here, we're done with this, we need to find a better place. Or maybe you sat in a, I've been in these kind of congregational meetings where it's raucous and angry, because they don't like this, they don't like that. Or maybe you've even watched your Christian parents' marriage just fall apart. And you're wondering, what is going on? Regardless, you know the long-term effects of your view of Christianity and the gospel when you experience those churches. You wonder, is there any hope? Really, is there any hope? Look at my parents' marriage. Look at what happened to the church. Is there any hope in this world? lack of harmony and disunity does not represent the gospel. In verse 8 through 13, just recast this vision for both the Jews and the Gentiles with special emphasis on Old Testament text. You know, that section, the big section in the front of the Bible that most of us don't read, except for the Psalms and the Proverbs. Notice how eight and nine, verses 8 and 9 include references to both Jews and Gentiles. And it has the same tone in, in Romans 1, 15 and 16. First to the Jews and then to the Greeks. God's plan to redeem Israel, not just for Israel. It was always including a plan to redeem men and women and children like you. And despite all the, their cultural differences, the heart of the gospel is to create harmony and unity. The gospel and the glory of God is the basis for that kind of harmony. And so just to drive it home, Paul is just nailing in another thing. Just, and he cites four amazing texts in the Old Testament. In verse 9, we got Psalm 18. And David vows, did you see that? I will praise you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. David is vowing to sing to God's name among the nations. He wants the nations, all the people around Israel, to know of God. He wanted to be an instrument by which God plays the melody of the gospel to the nations. Wouldn't that be beautiful for you? That you would be an instrument that God would play for the nations. For your workplace. I have vowed to sing and praise your name. Where? Out there. Not here. It's easy to sing here, right? Everybody's singing kind of the same song. Cool. You can sing your song out there. In verse 10, 
It's a quote from Deuteronomy 32, where Moses is celebrating his victory over Pharaoh, desiring that everyone would know his great name. Rejoice, O Gentiles. With his people, look at what he has done. And in verse 11, there's a quote from Psalm 17, and the psalmist calls upon the Gentiles to lift up their voices in worship. That's like evangelism right there, isn't it? Listen, let me tell you the story of what God has done, how he has saved us, what he has done. He's lifted me off this miry clay, set my feet firmly, securely on this solid ground. And let me tell you, this is beautiful. And I am going to call you. Lift up your name. Trust in him. In verse 12, is Isaiah 11. Paul is citing this famous messianic promise that pictures a shoot coming out of a stump in order to draw all the nations to him. These texts are meant to take you higher and higher and higher into the beauty and awe of God. Your heart should be stirred. And then he ends with this beautiful summary transcript. It has a benediction, and I'm going to use it today for our benediction instead of our, our normal one. The benediction is, may the God of hope fill you with all what? Joy. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound
Amen.